In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Bekara, for that Advent reading. Sure appreciate it. And good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all at church tonight. Uh, how many of you all are ready for Christmas? <laughs> how many of you all are stressed out already about Christmas? <laughs> how many of you have not thought about Christmas because finals are this coming week? <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you during the finals week. Uh, I had a, a guy I used to work for at a church. is the first church I worked at uh, right after I graduated from college. And he was a, a really strong type A person, personality. Most of you who know me know that I'm anything but type A personality. Um, a is not in my alphabet in terms of personality rating. Um, but he would get so excited anytime a challenge would come. And he's like, it's like final exams. Like final exams week is the best. It's like, it's like NBA finals. And I'm like, you're a sick human being. <laughs> and why am I working at this church? <laughs> Um, I hope you all are anticipating a good Christmas. Um, what are some traditions that people look forward to the most? Just take a minute here to talk about anticipation. What do people look forward to the most? Throw it out. Cookies. What kind, doctor? All. <laughs> Lefse. Okay. Springala, our, our family tradition, very German tradition. Other things people look forward to? Peace and quiet. Where, where do you have Christmas. Rachel, I want to go to Christmas with you and your family. Uh, other things? Christmas, so what was it over here? Christmas lights. Presents, awesome. Yes, and what else? Movies, okay. So like my heart is already growing three sizes here as you all are throwing these things out. Uh, Christmas is a time to anticipate good things. I sure look forward to it. Um, and as we think about Christmas, Advent is the season where we are longing for uh, Christmas. We're anticipating it, kind of counting down to when Christmas comes. And it's a way to think about how Israel longed for, Chris, uh, longed for the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, and was deeply uh, desiring that. And as they longed for that, uh, there's this long history behind it. The first thing that... Uh, happens. We, we covered this in John 1, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to try and find my slides here. I'm hoping they're in here somewhere. These are the wrong slides. These are Brooks' slides from this morning. Uh, 
So we will be using a different approach tonight called Sands Slides. So the first Advent sermon that we had was John uh, 1, verses 1 through 5. In John 1, verses 1 through 5, there, we, as Bacara just read for us, it says, In the beginning the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All things were made by the Word. But then it says that the, at this time, there was also darkness in the world. But the darkness did not overcome the light. The Word made all things. The Word was God and was with God. And as the Word made all things, uh, the Word was also the life and light of men. And the darkness did not overcome that. And so that sermon we talked about, uh, is our first Advent sermon, we talked about how this is the uh, time of realizing that we need the coming of Christ. We need the coming of Christ because there is still darkness in the world. Thank you all so much. My heroes. Um, the second sermon that we covered was not just the necessity of Jesus coming, but now the announcement of Jesus coming. So Brooks preached us through that last week. The announcement of Jesus coming came in verses 6 through 8. John the Baptist is here. And John the Baptist is the forerunner to the Messiah. And so he's announcing that the Messiah would come. The arrival of the Messiah is soon approaching. But John says, I am not the light. He came to bear witness about the light, the true light, who is Jesus. But he himself was not the light. And so tonight we're going to talk about Jesus' arrival. Jesus finally arrives. So if creation is the creation of God's good world, but yet there's darkness in the world, sin has come into the world, and there's this promise that starts in Genesis 3. After sin comes into the world, there's this promise that God would send a descendant from Eve who would crush the serpent's head. From Genesis 3 onward, it's this long promise and waiting for God to make good on this promise. So from Genesis 3 onward, you can look at Israel longing for this descendant who would crush the serpent's head. And as John is here announcing, oh, the Messiah soon to come, this is a time that's like very, very ripe with expectation. People's hopes would have been high if they believed John. From Genesis 3 onward, there was this expectation, but the closer you get to Jesus' life, the more expectation there is. And if you look at history, the history of Judaism after uh, the Old Testament, there are various groups who were longing for the Messiah and thought maybe even the Messiah had come. So there are different uh, kind of growing anticipations and expectations that the Messiah would be here. And finally, Jesus does come. We see Jesus' arrival, and John talks about it in John 1, verse 9. It says, the true light, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So after all of this long waiting, this long expectation, the true light is coming into the world. And this isn't just like the light kind of standing at a distance and casting some light into the world. It's the light himself as a person entering into this world, a very personal entrance into the world. And as Jesus arrives as the light of the world and enters into the world, we have to understand the world that he entered into. This isn't just world in the sense of the physical world, like with trees and grass and soil and plants and bugs and things like that. Uh, that's one way to define world. But in John, when John uses the word world, he's often talking about sinful uh, the created order that is now in sinful rebellion to God. So when Jesus is the true light, 
who's coming into the world, arriving in the world. This isn't just Jesus coming into hunky-dory creation. This is Jesus coming into spiritual darkness, creation that has been thrown into sin and rebellion. And Jesus is coming into that sinful world as the light, to shine a light in that darkness. And this is the fulfillment of so much long-expected and anticipated hope in Israel. So there's an interesting question. Why did Jesus get the reception that he got? If Jesus is the much-anticipated, long-awaited Savior and Messiah, why did he show up and very few people recognized him, very few people received him, believed him, and many people actually rejected him? Israel had long waited for the coming of the Messiah and the Redeemer. Its hopes were riding high on the coming of the Messiah. But when Jesus finally arrives, it largely went unrecognized. And some people were even opposed to him. We see this in John 1, verses 10 through 11. It says, he, the true light, which is referring to Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So this is a pretty stark reality, if you think about it. We humans would not have breath, we would not have thought, we would not have feeling or will, were it not for God making us. He has formed us, he has crafted us to have thought and breath and will and life. And with that very life that has come from Christ, who's made humanity, that very life rejects him. That's a crazy thought to think about. The very humans who've been made by God use the life that has been given to them to reject him. They did not receive him. And this is a fairly shared problem. This is not just a few people. John tells us the world did not know him. So he's referring to the world at large, which would include Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But he also says even his own people did not receive him. The special chosen promised children of Israel did not receive their king. They did not welcome the light. They did not accept the light. They did not believe in him. And it raises a question, why do people struggle to accept Jesus as the light? I think there are a lot of different answers that come together, but John seems to want to emphasize a specific point. This is in John 3, just two chapters later. So I think John's trying to make this point specifically. He says, and this is the judgment. The light, meaning Jesus, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, this is a very serious saying, but I have kind of a humorous illustration to kind of make the point. Um, you hear the phrase, ignorance is bliss. Um, one way that might apply is to how the sausage is made. Um, we sometimes eat sausage, not all of us do, um, and it's tasty uh, for some of us, but you might not want to know how that sausage is made. I grew up on a farm, and I, we would butcher hogs fairly regularly, and so I have a very hands-on understanding of how the sausage is made. 
And some of you may not want to know, uh, lest you would not enjoy your sausage any longer. <laughs> or think of it in these terms. Um, I went to a restaurant. Uh, it's not that I go there very often. Mindy and I actually went there to Cheddar's up in North Liberty or Coralville. I never know where the line is between North Liberty, Coralville. It's like one amorphous blob for me. But we went to Cheddar's, and I always enjoyed going to Cheddar's in years past. But they had something new on the menu that really ruined the experience in some ways. And it was the calorie count for every single item on the menu. <laughs> I'm so excited about getting something slathered in gravy and probably deep fat fried. And I'm ex you know, ready to order it and then I see this number next to it and I'm like, come on. If I didn't know the number, then I wouldn't feel guilty over this. But now that you, I mean, clearly I know this is not the healthiest thing. This is not like eating a salad. Okay, I get that. Like, I do have some semblance of intelligence. But don't put the number on it to make it clear to me, like, overtly how deeply unhealthy this is. That all of a sudden, now I feel guilt of all kinds of uh, deep sorts. Some ways, ignorance is bliss. Don't tell me the calorie count so I can enjoy this uh, kind of guilty pleasure. We often don't want to be in the know when it comes to some things because then it hinders our enjoyment of those things. Now, when it comes to really serious matters, such as belief in God, what is right and good in life, what is morally right, what is the good that God would have us do in his world, who is God and what is the good that he has done and is doing in this world? When it comes to understanding those truths, ignorance is not bliss. It might feel like it, but it's not bliss. To be blissfully ignorant of our sins allows us to kind of hide our sins in the dark, but those sins, when we live them out, they have dangerous consequences for us and for other people. And so if we're not aware of our sin, if we're not aware of who God is, if we're not aware of the truth, if we're not walking in the light, we can actually be walking in really dangerous territory and not realize it, but we can walk in bliss because we're ignorant of it. And I think what was happening here, what John's trying to say is that many humans, both Gentiles and Jews, they saw Jesus come. He's the true light coming into the world to show us what God is really like, to push back against the darkness, but they did not receive him because he wasn't what they expected. They were walking in the dark in spiritual darkness and spiritual misunderstanding and were expecting something else. And so when Jesus comes, they can't see his goodness. They can't see that he is the light because they're expecting something else. Some people were expecting uh, maybe like a political leader who could throw off Roman domination from Israel. Other people were maybe looking for somebody who was immensely steeped in all kinds of rabbinic scholarship and had sat at the feet of all of these rabbinic scholars. Maybe some of them were looking for somebody who was part of the religious establishment, and Jesus was not. He was the son of a carpenter. Some people might have been looking for a great philosopher, but Jesus was used to growing up with woodworking as a trade with his father and is not a great philosopher, though he is immensely wise, the light of the world, and knows the law inside and out. Our sinful desires for certain things can cloud our judgment. They do cloud our judgment, and it clouds our ability to see truth, to recognize truth as truth, to take that truth seriously. 
Many times because of our desires, we want truth to conform to our desires. I wish that this chicken fried steak slathered in immense amounts of gravy was not 1,500 calories. That's my desire. But the truth does not conform to my desire. But when we so deeply uh, want our desires to be true, sometimes we can, uh, we can lie to ourselves, we can walk in the dark, and we don't know the truth, we don't soak in the truth, and we don't accept or receive the truth. As long as there has been sin in this world, as long as there has been sin in the world, People have been hiding from God and hiding from his light. We see it all the way back in Genesis 3. So Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are walking with God in the garden. They're enjoying his presence. They're enjoying his goodness. Uh, They sin. And what's the first thing they do? They cover themselves. So they're kind of trying to hide their own shame from one another. But when God approaches and is in the garden during the cool of the day, they hide from God. God has not come to them and uttered any kind of consequence yet. There have been no spankings yet. (laughs) God shows up and just the sound of him causes them to want to hide. To hide from him and hide their sin. And it's not just hiding uh, from him physically. Even as God draws them out. This is like if God is thinking of him as the light. Here he's shining a light on them and it's exposing their sin. He's asking Adam, what did you do? Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? And Adam then wants to take the light that is being shined upon him, that light of interrogation. He wants that light to shift now over to Eve. He says, the woman that you gave to be with me, she's the one that gave me some fruit. He's wanting to hide. The light is on him. He wants to get out of that light. He doesn't want to be under that spotlight. There are other ways that people throughout the scriptures have wanted to hide from their sin and hide from the light. So God um, promises Abraham, uh, this man, that he would become a great nation, and Abraham then becomes the people of Israel, and then God gives the people of Israel this law. He hands down to them this very special law, and he would have them to um, adhere to that law in order to uh, walk in covenant relationship with him. And a lot of that law has to do with um, moral and ethical things that God would have his people to be about. This is what it looks like to love one another. This is what it looks like to show mercy and to care for one another. So he gives them moral and ethical law. But there's also religious and ceremonial law. Like if you sin, here are some sacrifices you can make. Um, If you want to give thanks to the Lord, here's an offering that you can make. There are ceremonial aspects of the law Um, There are ritual aspects of the law alongside these moral aspects of the law. And sometimes what would happen is people got good at keeping some of the ceremonial aspects of the law, but it allowed them to hide the fact that they weren't actually loving one another very well. When it came to whether their hearts were gripped with love for God and gripped with love for other people, it was easy to hide behind a thin veneer of good law-keeping by saying, look at what I do with these ceremonies and these rituals. I make my sacrifices. I go to the temple. I make the right observances and observe all the rituals. 
And it's easy to maybe be able to hide one's sin by covering it with this thin veneer of good law-keeping. But underneath, if a person's heart is not oriented to love God, and if a person is not loving other people, then that thin veneer of law-keeping sits on top of all kinds of spiritual darkness. And Jesus, in the Gospel of John, has to confront people who actually are good at keeping the law in certain ceremonial ways, certain traditional ways, have to do with rituals, but they're not good at loving other people. An example would be uh, Jesus heals a guy on the Sabbath. And some people are upset and say, Jesus, that's work on the Sabbath. You've broken one of our ritual laws, a ceremonial law. You've worked on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, is it better to do mercy on the Sabbath? Jesus is saying the law, the whole point of the law is to love others and to love God. Is this not loving to love this man and heal him on the Sabbath? And by the way, would, which one of you wouldn't help your own ox out of a pit if they fell into a pit on the Sabbath? Like you do work on the Sabbath in some cases. So why are you picking on me for performing this work? It's a way of telling them you're kind of nitpicky about which ceremonies are worth keeping, but you overlook the importance of loving other people. Or another case, Jesus says, you tithe of your, of your goods, but you've overlooked mercy. You've not practiced mercy. It would be better for you to do both. And so good law-keeping sometimes can sit on top of a sinful heart and give it this pretty veneer. But underneath, there's spiritual darkness. At our house where we live, um, we moved in about three years ago, and the first thing I really liked about it was it seemed like the countertops looked really nice. Um, the countertops at our old house were falling apart. They were like over 50 years old and were just absolutely falling apart. And so the little things, you move into a new house, like, look at the new countertops. They're shiny. They look really nice. Within uh, a short amount of time, they start chipping. And what I found out is that somebody put a thin uh, layer of finish on the top to make them look nice. <laughs> but they're not very sturdy, they're not very dur durable, and now they're starting to fall apart in various places. A thin veneer of law-keeping looks religious, looks, maybe has this aura of spirituality, but it may also just be a thin layer that sits on top of spiritual darkness that needs to be revealed. And so Jesus is coming to the world, he's coming to his own, and people do not receive him because they have a darkened spiritual understanding. They are hiding from the truth. Sometimes hiding from the light can look like draping a lot of religiosity over our inner sins and dispositions, but it really does nothing to deal with the hard issues. So what this is saying, John is saying, Jesus shows up, Jesus arrives, and there are a lot of Jews, there are a lot of Gentiles that don't receive him because they're stuck in spiritual darkness. They're bound to spiritual darkness. Jesus arrives, this is the long awaited Messiah of Israel, and people don't receive him because they are stuck in spiritual darkness and don't understand that he is the light and in some cases don't want him to be the light because he is going to address some of their heart issues. The good news is some people did believe. It says that to all who did receive him, the light, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So John records in his gospel that there are actually a number of folks, a good number of folks who did receive Jesus. They placed their faith in him. They believed in who he was. They accepted him as the light. And in fact, uh, John's gospel itself is recorded to help even more and more people believe that Jesus is the light and to accept him and to believe him. At the end of John, John says, I've recorded all of these things. I've written about all these signs that Jesus performed so that you even more people would believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the light. And so John gives us a record of people believing him, and then his gospel is a tool that he develops to try and help more people believe in Jesus. And we see that happen in church history, more and more people believing in Jesus. And what happened when these people believed in Jesus and received him? What does it look like to receive him? It doesn't mean that these people were, were perfect morally. It's not that they heard Jesus' moral teaching about what it looks like to love your neighbor and to love your enemy, and they're like, check, I am killing it at loving my, my, my neighbor and loving my enemy. What it looked like to accept that Jesus is the light, to believe in him, was for Jesus to come to sinners and for him to expose their sinful hearts but for them to receive his grace and forgiveness. What it looks like to believe in the light is not to be a morally perfect person who can step into the light, and as Jesus tells us what is right, we're like, yep, I meet all those standards. What it looks like is as we step into the light and Jesus shines a light on our hearts and he reveals all the cobwebs where we're, where we're lustful, where we're greedy, where we're selfish, where we're arrogant, where we're less than caring, less than considerate, He shines a light on that, and then as the light is shown upon that, he is able to present himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To believe in him as the light of the world is to stand in the light and allow him to expose our sin, but then allow him to also be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where we can stand in the light fully forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us to wash our hearts, to cleanse us. Now, what is the gift that comes from this? This is what it looks like to believe in him, to receive him. It looks like allowing him to shine a light on our sin. But what is the gift that comes from that? It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave. This is the language of gift giving. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're at the close of a year, and you look back on your year, do you maybe feel like, I don't know, this has been a hard year for me spiritually. I don't feel like I can look back on this year and see a lot of really great fruit that I've been abiding in the Lord, that I've been living in the way that Jesus would want me to, even though I'm trying. I feel like this has been a hard spiritual year And maybe you feel like, I am owned more by spiritual darkness than anything else. I'm owned by my failures. I'm owned by my continual struggle against certain sins and my continual inability to overcome those. Today, there is the joy of being able to call upon Jesus and say, Father, forgive me for my sins. Shine a light upon my sin and remind me again that today I am a child of God. That as I'm fighting and warring against these sinful inclinations, 
that even when I'm struggling and maybe failing, that by grace you continue to call me a child of God. Today, you're not owned by spiritual darkness when you place your faith in Jesus. When you call upon him for forgiveness, the light of the world not only exposes your sin, but he's there to be the Lamb of God to take away your sin. And you are now a blood-bought child of God. What does he give us? In this context, he calls us children of God, but what does that mean? There's several things. Uh, First of all, in John 1, John has already talked about the fact that Jesus was the word at the beginning of of creation, at the beginning of all things, and he was the word that was with God and was God, and he created all things. So when John starts out John 1 and says, in the beginning, what is he wanting us to hearken back to? You can say it out loud. Genesis 1. So John is saying, whatever I'm going to say here about this word that's coming into the world, this has a deep connection to Genesis 1. This has a very deep connection to Genesis 1. In fact, in John 1, verses 10 through 13, John makes a tie. He says, he, the light of the world, or the word that was God and was with God, uh, everything in the world was made through him. So he's the creator God. And yet the world did not recognize this creator God as he stepped into the world. And this creator God comes to his own, his own people who do not receive him. But to all who did receive this creator God, who has now stepped into the world to be the light in the world, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the language of rebirth. The creator God who created humans is coming into a sinful world that is hampered and enslaved to spiritual darkness and now he is going to give them rebirth. The creator God is going to rebirth new humans as they place their faith in him, and he's going to raise us to new life. No longer to be bound to sin. And not just sin out there in the world, but the sin in our own hearts. So he comes to give us new life. The creator God, who is the source of all life at the beginning, is now coming to be the source of recreated new spiritual life to raise you from spiritual dead. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you would say, sometimes in my life, as much as I strive, I still feel like there's a lot of spiritual death in my own life. Thank God for the light of the world who comes to give us a miraculous new birth by grace. He comes to give us new life. And there are two kinds of new life that he gives. As the creator is also the recreator who raises us from spiritual death, he gives us two kinds of life. First of all, he gives us eternal life in the future. Now, this is a major theme throughout John. If you just sit down and plow through John, you see this phrase all over the place about eternal life. John constantly is emphasizing that those who believe in Jesus receive eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Praise God that by grace, And because of what Jesus has done, we get the hope of eternal life. Sin does not have the final say over your eternity. Your good works do not have the final say over your eternity. The finished work of the Lamb of God, the light of the world who came into this world to die for sinners like you and me, his work on the cross has the final say over your eternity. 
And he wants to draw you into rich eternal life as you place your faith in him and follow after him. He raises us up to eternal life. But he also, in John, there's this language of raising us up to a life where we bear fruit. Now. This isn't as prominent in John as the theme of eternal life, but it's a major theme. I'd say it's a secondary theme in John. Those who believe in Jesus and abide in Christ bear fruit, spiritual fruit. An example is John 15, 5. It says, I am the vine, you disciples are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When we abide in Christ, he not only allows us to experience eternal life, we're forgiven of our sins, but he is now at work in these spiritually dark hearts to root out the spiritual darkness so that from an inward transformation, we begin to live in such a way that we bear good spiritual fruit in the world. Not for our glory, not to say, look at me, I'm a great Christian kid or girl, you know, boy or girl, but a way to honor God, to honor the Savior who has worked this in us. Have you ever gone out to pick fruit from a, like an apple tree or maybe you've gone berry picking and like this was common for us when we'd go blackberry picking, we'd drive to the farm. It's so much fun. We always loved it. We'd get to like ride in the back of the truck and the wind is blowing in our hair and it's really like kind of this adventure and we're all joking and you get to the farm and start picking blackberries and all of a sudden you run into a patch where there are no berries. There are berries all over the place, but then there's this small like little spot you start to look closely, and if you look really closely, if you look at all of the, the, the berry bush itself as it's coming out, there are these branches that are dark and brittle and dry. You start to know there's no fruit on them because they're dead. There's no fruit on this branch because it's dead. Jesus raises us to new life, not just for the hope of eternity in heaven with him, but he raises us to new life so that we would bear fruit in this world. And he does that by sending his son to be the light of the world to forgive us of our sins, but who also then shines a light on the dark areas of our hearts so that they can be uprooted, rooted out. And then in their place, he shows us his goodness. He shows us his love. He shows us what is right and what is good to do. And in its place, as our hearts are, the soil of our hearts is churned up, then we're able to begin to see him work good fruit in us as we abide in him. So tonight, as we close, I'd just like to encourage everyone. It's so good to stand in the light. This Christmas season, as we think about Jesus being the light who has come into the world, it's so good to stand in the light. It doesn't always feel good at first. How many of you would say, I enjoy having my sin exposed? I put it on my calendar for every Thursday night because I love it so much. It's not the most enjoyable thing in the world. But it's also not enjoyable to allow sin to fester in our hearts. It is also not enjoyable to allow sin to drive a wedge between us and the Father. It is also not enjoyable to allow sin to fester in our hearts and to show up in how we treat others poorly. It is also not good to allow sin to comfortably live and exist in the dark, but to cause us to do things that are harmful to ourselves. Sinful habits that hurt ourselves and sinful habits that don't honor our Father in heaven. 
Standing in the light does not feel good, but dealing with the consequences of sin is also not very enjoyable. So as we stand in the light, it can be painful, but how many of you would also say, I know the joy of coming into the light and feeling that initial sting of God shining a light on my sin, but knowing that there's no other rescue, there's no other place where my shame can be taken away, there's nowhere else where my guilt can be taken away, but right here in the light as he shines a light on it, that's where his grace is found. Nowhere else. And you know the joy of the love of a heavenly father who wraps you in his arms and says, I see your sin, but because of your faith in Jesus and your confession, that sin is no more. Come into my fatherly embrace. It's in the light that we find his grace. And it's in the light that we find an open embrace from the father. But it's also in the light that he begins to chip away at the darkness So he not only forgives our sins, but then he begins to transform our hearts so that we actually begin to live in such a way that it is good. We do bear fruit. And it's not bearing fruit so that we can say, look, I'm doing enough good things to earn my way into eternal life. It's that because of his work in us, his overwhelming work in us, he transforms our hearts so that we begin to bear fruit in ways that bring his kingdom to other people and that glorify him that glorify him. So this Christmas, I'm so grateful for the light that he invites us to stand in the light for our sin to be exposed, but there to experience his grace, but then also to experience his refining work as we grow in holiness and begin to bear fruit and bring his kingdom goodness into the world to the praise of his glory and for the well-being of those around us. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, tonight is a great night to believe in him, to confess your sin, maybe for the first time in your life to step into the light and say, Father God, here are the ways that I've sinned. I confess those things to you. I pray that you would reveal even more things that I've done that I'm not aware of, but I'm confessing those things knowing that tonight you will shower me with grace and forgive me because of what Jesus has done at the cross. Tonight, I invite you to take that step. And I invite you to talk with Jason, Pastor Jason, who will be up here afterwards. Talk with me. Talk with a friend who brought you. We'd love to encourage you as you place your faith in Jesus and begin that walk with him. For believers here tonight who are already walking with Jesus, already placed your faith in Jesus, I encourage you, walk in the light. Step fully into the light. I know it's tempting at times to want to be comfortable and not confess our sins to the Lord, or not confess it to somebody else who can help us stand in the light. Sometimes it helps to have somebody hold your hand that will help you kind of pull into the light, right? Knowing you're not doing it alone, and they can remind you of God's grace as you step into the light. This year, this time of the year, I'd want to encourage you, step into the light. And as you do, be reminded of God's grace. Be reminded of his grace for you and for your sin. But as you do that, also take joy in the hope that he is working good work in you. He has good works prepared beforehand that you should walk in them to bear fruit. And as you step into the light, he not only forgives your sin, but he helps you to grow in Christ-likeness so that you can bear fruit in this world and to walk in joy. How many of you would say, There's a, when I start seeing God working fruit in my life as I abide in him and as I confess sin and as I walk with him, you start to experience joy that you've not experienced before. He brings us joy, and he wants us to have full joy, as John says. We're going to sing tonight as we close.
And as we sing, I'd like us to turn to the Lord and just ask him to wash over us tonight and to remind us of just how powerful and how good the light of the world is. Lord, we're so grateful for Christmas. We want to thank you that uh, you've made a plan to send your son into the world, that you have not left the world to spiritual darkness, to spiritual death, and to spiritual decay, and you've not left us to die and to experience eternity in hell. We want to thank you, Lord God, that by grace, you've made a plan to send your son and that he stepped into history as fully God and fully man to be the light and to forgive us of our darkness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take steps of stepping into the light, receiving your forgiveness, receiving your grace today. Help us to take joy that you're the Lamb of, the, of God who takes away our sin when we allow you to shine light on it. And then, Lord God, I pray that you'd also help us to experience new life, not just the hope and the joy of eternal life. Pray that you would fan that into flame this year for us to remember that uh, we have so much joy ahead of us in eternity because of your good work. But help us to also, Lord God, rejoice in your refining work in us. And I pray that this year as we look to 2020 that, Lord, you would work new life in us. I need that in myself. I pray that for myself, just as much as for every brother and sister here, Lord, you would work good fruit in my life. Help us to walk in the light, to abide in you, to not hide in the dark and hide in the shadows, but Lord God, to experience your good work as the light shines in us. And Lord, may you be glorified. May your son be glorified in all of this. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.